I love them. I don't care what anybody thinks. I love the Beatles for them, and I'll always love them. Even when I'm 105 and an old grandmother, I'll love them. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the She Loves You podcast, the podcast where we talk about the inspiring women in the Beatles' lives, everyone from the wives, the friends, the girlfriends, the groupies, and even the affairs and so on, all the important women in their lives. I'm, hope I'm hoping you all are doing amazing. Um, I know it's been a while since my last episode, and I apologize for that. Again, school gets in the way of everything. But I am really, really excited about today's episode, you guys. Um, I have my first guest, which is, like, amazing for me, and I'm sure amazing for you all, because hearing me talk all the time, I'm sure it can get a bit draining. Um, but I'm really, really happy to um, introduce our next guest. He is the author of a new Beatle book called Us and Them, which talks about the Beatles and Canada, which you might think, hmm, what do the Beatles have to do with Canada? But don't worry, we're going to explain that soon. Um, I truly believe that depending on where you live, you can all sort of wonder, oh my gosh, the Beatles came to my town, or oh gosh, the Beatles came to my city, my state, my country. And it's amazing when we can make those connections, I think. Um, and I've been able to read this book for about a week now, and it's been amazing to discover all the amazing connections that Canada truly has with the Beatles, more than we think, because we don't necessarily think that's true. But um, I'm here with John Arone. Like I said, he's the author of Us and Them. And um, yeah, hi, John. It's really good to talk to you today. Thanks for having me on, Natalia. It's a pleasure. And uh, I'm you're my first podcast recording, so I'm very excited too. I'm so happy about that. I'm so glad I could share this with you because this is such an interesting topic. It's um, one I never thought about, as I've said, and I'm sure a lot of people really haven't thought about it either, but the idea that Canada is such a force in Beatles history, more than we think it is. Um, and it's just really interesting because Canada, I've always found it so incredibly beautiful and you're so lucky to be from there because it's such an interesting place and there's so much history beyond Beatles history, obviously, but you know, with us, it's about Beatles. So it's an incredible, incredible place. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to talk to you about this incredible book and um, why don't you tell us a little bit about specifically what you have detailed in this book and you know why it, it's a good It began for me in, in 2010, my first trip to Liverpool. I've been a lifelong Beatles fan, uh, born and raised in Toronto. I've lived and worked in, throughout Canada and the US, but a lifelong Beatles fan, nothing ever changed that. And then a trip to Liverpool in 2010 really carried that home for me because I went to the Beatles story, which is a great museum they have on the docks there in Liverpool. It's probably the, the finest, finest single location for Beatles history in the world. And there is a photo of John Lennon and Yoko Ono in Montreal, lying in bed in May or June of 1969. And it all sort of came to me. I thought, that is such a small sliver of um, Canada's connection to the Beatles as a band and as solo artists. I can do more than that. The Beatles Museum is a wonderful place, but it only gave us that one photo of John and Yoko in bed in Montreal. And I thought there's way more to this. And so I set out to write the book and uh, it took me a year, actually a year of research and about four months uh, to write it, but this is it. Uh, I've managed to find over 50 significant connections to the Beatles um, and Canada or Canadians. And but not just connections. So it's easy to make connections, right? You can do a, a Wikipedia download and you can follow people and lives and names and whatnot. But this is more about the arc of their career. So the beginning, the formation of the Beatles, the middle, their peak, so call it mid 60s, right through to the, the band's dissolution, the, the end of the band in 1970. Canada had a role in all of that. And I know it's hard to imagine, but just think of it in, in these terms. Let's accept the fact that the UK and the US were at the, at the top of sort of uh, Beatlemania, right? So they're, they're, at, they're at a level that no one can touch. And we accept that, right? So especially at the beginning, UK, at uh, the peak of their fame, US, I mean, they, they lived in, two of them died in the US, so clearly that was, that was important. But as a second tier country, no one beats Canada, in my opinion, and as, as the book sets out to prove. No one beats Canada as a second tier, solid foothold 
on the Beatles' careers. And that's what I set out to do. Absolutely. I think Canada is just an incredible place, as I've mentioned, and there's so much history. But beyond that, um, I found it so interesting when I was reading your intro, just, you know, how these little things that you're thinking, you know, how you said that there's so much more to this. Um, and I guess particularly with my podcast, where we talk about the women of the Beatles, there's so many connections to Canada, more than I thought about. You know, the one story that got me was I completely forgot that Lillian Powell, John's mother-in-law, Cynthia's mother, lived in Canada for a time. And I'm just thinking like, oh my gosh, that's so true. I forgot about that reading the book. And then it was just, I kept going and I kept reading and I got so interested. Um, so I wanted to ask, I was also reading your intro and um, you were talking about how you got into the Beatles at a pretty young age. Um, do you want to talk about that? Like, how did you sure. discover them and what made you want to become the biggest fan of this band as you are, as I can tell? Yeah, it's, it's a fair point. So I'm, I'm like millions and millions of others. I'm a second generation Beatles fan. I, I was too young to remember the Ed Sullivan show, which is sort of the point, the starting point for a lot of folks in their, in their Beatles uh, journey. Uh, for me, it was 1970. It was actually the year they broke up and the Let It Be album was released. And I was doing a bakery uh, errand for my, for my nonna, my grandmother. And uh, I saw this commotion at this department store in Toronto. And I decided to sneak in as I did um, with warm, warm uh, bread in my hands. And I saw it. I saw a wall completely devoted to the box set in Canada. We had the box set for Let It Be right across the wall. And I saw those faces. And then in the, the turntable or the pit of the department store where the turntable was spinning, they were playing the just released Let It Be album. Mm -hmm. And I heard something that just changed me. And I was nine. I was nine. And I needed something to fill my ears to, to remind me that, that this little world I was living in was bigger than my, my home and my parents and my, and my siblings. And so that's what did it for me. So I got, the, um, I got the itch for rock and roll in 1970 with Let It Be playing in a department store um, environment. That's incredible. Yeah, the same, well, not really the same, but I guess I, I got into them at a very young age as well. My uh, father is a huge music lover as am I, and we would listen to I Want to Hold Your Hand in the Car, you know, since I was like, right. as I can remember, you know, so I think, I think that's the interesting thing, the Beatles have always been around, it just kind of took us a little bit to discover them, right, and understand what impact they really had in the world at large, which is like, amazing. Um, and and you, know, how you can also make the argument, I mean, so there's you, one generation, perhaps twice removed from the Beatles, I'm, one, I'm a generation removed from the Beatles, you can actually make the argument, that kids today, I'm talking about teenagers today, are another wave of Beatles fans. It's, it seems never to end. It seems to me that you can actually, perhaps through uh, downloads and sales data and just general publicity and reissues and, and announcements, you can make the case the Beatles are perhaps more popular today than they ever were. And that's because young people refuse to turn their backs on the Beatles. They just love what they're listening to, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I am very active on social media with a lot of my um, pages and podcasts, you know, and it's amazing to see the dedication that younger people are having. I mean, I don't think I've ever, I mean, like when I was in school myself, social media was kind of not just starting, but it was really getting a footing. And I can just remember, we didn't have this before. We didn't have this sort of fan crazy I mean I'm assuming Beatlemania was just as nuts obviously I wasn't sure. that's fair imagine but I would just I, I think about this what would have happened had social media been around then you know like the, things would have been exposed people would have been talked about more it's it's insane but yeah you're right the dedication is amazing now and I think social media had a real um foot like you know big part in that because sure. Now kids are able to like say, oh, listen to this song, let's do this, oh, watch this interview. You know, we can see interviews that we didn't even know about now in the best quality, you know? So it, it, I think it's sort of a blessing to be a Beatles fan now, I always say, because we have so much more access to things and information. Um, but yeah, and, but, but I will say, I think it is really nice also, you know, not just with your book, but I guess Beatle books in general, that we can still find out things we wouldn't have known from a written source, you know, because I, 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 I'm a big reader. So for me, it's um, nice to go back to like the original way of finding out things, you know, reading it in awesome. a book or a newspaper. Awesome. Good on you. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but no, social media is a big impact. Um, and, and it's great that you started a page for the book as well, because like an Instagram page, because it does get more awareness. And um, yeah, I, I really hope everyone reads. Um, so, all right, let's see. Um, what is it? I wanted to also ask, um, because I study English myself in college and writing is a big part of my um, education right now. What is it like writing a Beatles book? I've always been curious about that. Yeah, so I mean, the, the, the lion's share of the work is not the writing, it's the research. Right. Um, so it took me perhaps a year of research and, 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 with, and with all sort of serious works, uh, you want to have more than one source for every factoid, for every, every story, every piece of, of, of uh, Beatles trivia. Um, and so getting that second source sometimes was, was the most work, but, but I found that there's so many reference points for Beatles. I mean, a, a University of Liverpool professor estimates there are 8,000 books written about the Beatles. So I knew that to write the 8,001st book about the Beatles, um, I would have plenty of backup. And there are some great Beatles scholars out there. There are, there are books that uh, just blow, blow my mind in terms of how well researched they are and how carefully annotated the research is, is uh, to back up the, the, the book's conclusion. So lots of material. There's, I mean, we can keep writing Beatles books forever because they just keep piling on and new things emerge or old things emerge with a new twist. And so writing a Beatles book, um, well, that took about two or three months. It was the research that was about a, a year or so of my life and uh, I'm also retired so I have time on my hands so I retired at age 58 I had a life in, um, in with large corporations that was my career um, I got out as early as I possibly could um, and so I set out I set out to do something different and so now I'm writing oh well that's great yeah I could imagine but yeah that must have been I mean taking a whole year to just learn about this band that we love must have been just amazing for you because I, I, I you know I think one day I'd love to write a Beatles book myself and and do it you know like an interesting like you right you you took a topic that was nobody really thought about you know we don't think about you know the Beatles in Canada it's such a I mean at first I, I was like oh that's that's very interesting I really didn't think about it so you know I'd love to do a topic that not is you know not many people are talking about um whatever that will be we'll see you know in the future um but uh, yeah that that's wonderful um do you find I wanted to also ask do you find that because there are so many books on the Beatles information can get just so you know screwed up at times because I, I find that all the books I read say one thing and then one thing will say the other and you know do you find that in your research did you find that or was it more just like eh, yes and, yes and no and and so the fallback on that is to rely on oral histories and so that's why I conducted um, a couple dozen interviews for the book so people who actually had a, a, a real life um, experience uh, either that had a Beatles connection or with an actual Beatle or Beatles plural um, so I did that. Uh, that really is a good backup uh, because there's so much out there. But we all know that there are great Beatles uh, authors and historians out there. So I can't not do this interview without mentioning Mark Lewison. Right. So Mark Lewison is is to is to Beatle authors like he is the he is the the one example of getting it right all the time. Um, and his, his volume one history of the Beatles, uh, I think there are probably 20 footnotes in my book that are referencing his volume one. Bob Spitz, another, another one who's written a lot of good stuff about the Beatles. There's a Canadian author named Piers Hemmingson, and I give Piers a lot of credit as well because he really focused on the Beatles' uh, arrival or pre-arrival in North America. Uh, might not be known to you, but uh, Canada actually adopted the Beatles uh, up to a year before the U.S. really caught on. So that says a lot. Now you can say you can you can easily conclude. Well, we were part of the British Commonwealth. We were a more recent colony of Great Britain than the U.S. was. So maybe we were wired that way. Well, that's part of it. There was also some very uh, key people who were integral to bringing the Beatles to Canada, and in fact, the entire Western Hemisphere long before the Ed Sullivan show. And Piers does a great job of explaining that. So there are good sources out there. Um, it's important to find them. And then it's important to um, nurture your own sources uh, through interviews and through um, double sourcing and, and fact checking.
Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, because if anyone knows me, I'm a stickler for fact checking and like knowing that things are what they are. Because I, I think, you know, in my um, view of reading Beatle books throughout the years, it's been sort of easy to detect what, you know, someone may have said versus what, you know, someone is assuming. Because I think that's, um, I think that's kind of the, I don't know, of issue, but I think that's sort of a big problem with a lot of Beatle books is things can be said, but things might also just be assumed. So it's, it's wonderful that um, fact-checking is very prevalent in your book, it seems, and that's, that's wonderful. Um, so I wanted to say, uh, what is your favorite Canadian Beatle fact? In all that you've researched, what is your number one favorite that you can say, okay, this is why I wrote my book. I'm so happy about this. Um, I'm going to have to give you two. Do you remember how I mentioned to you that Canada has significant uh, touch points in the arc of their career, their beginning, their middle, and their end. Let me give you a beginning one and an end one. Okay. Um, uh, a unique individual named Carol Levy. Carol Levy was um, born in Ontario, but was raised in Vancouver. Um, was a man of infinite uh, imagination and skill uh, as an adolescent. He went to the Yukon Territory to live there, and he came back to Vancouver, and he practiced as a hypnotist, and then he became popular on a radio program throughout British Columbia. Really interesting guy. And he began the very early sort of stages of kind of like uh, talent shows where you would audition people and they'd win prizes or they'd go on to get professional contracts. Started that on the radio in Vancouver, and decided, there's more to this world than British Columbia. I'm going to go to the UK. So he ended up in England, ended up convincing the BBC to do a talent search type show. And among, in the first few years of him doing so, has John Lennon and the Quarrymen auditioned for his show. Incredible. They lose. <laughs> they lose to another band. Right. Um, uh, three years later, John, Paul, and George. They call themselves Johnny and the Moondogs. Right, right. Audition again, this time for the TV version of Carol Levy's show. They didn't lose. They could have won, but they had to catch the bus back to Liverpool because they were doing this in Manchester, and away they go. So twice, twice a Canadian had in his, within his grasp John Lennon, and then a second time around, John Lennon, George Harrison, and... Paul McCartney. He had them within his grasp. They were performing in front of him. They were un, an unknown entity, and he's a talent scout. Wow. And both times, they slipped out of his hands. What? That's wow. Now, had, had they won, had the Quarrymen gone on and, and become nationally famous in the UK, had Johnny and the Moondogs done the same, <laughs> would we have the Beatles? You know... Where, <laughs> where, would, where would Paul and George fit in if the Quarry men, who didn't have them join the band yet, went on to national fame? Where would Ringo fit in had the three of them, Johnny and the Moondogs, gone on to national fame? It might have been a whole different uh, history of the Beatles. Definitely, yeah. Yes. Changed for, you know. For because they, they, they slipped through the hands of this Canadian, we got the Beatles. <laughs> So that, that's one of the beauties uh, at the start. Now, at the end, so now I'm going to go to the other side of the equation. You know, 10 or so years later, you've got John Lennon deciding to come to Toronto to do a concert in front of over 20,000 people at the University of Toronto because he was asked to be the MC, but he said, no, 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 I'll come and play. So he gathers Yoko, he gathers Eric Clapton, he gathers Klaus Vormann and Alan White, Wow. And in September of 1969, he's playing to a stadium for the first time in his life without Paul, George, and Ringo. Yeah. And guess what? Even though he's sick with fear, he's nervous as all heck, the band barely prepared for this concert, they pull it off. By the way, Jim Morrison and the Doors were on the same bill, just FYI. <laughs> anyway, so they pulled it off. And here's John thinking to himself, I did it. I played without my wingmen, the Beatles. <laughs> and so that emboldened him to start thinking about life after the Beatles. And sure enough, when he got back to England, he pretty much told the other three, we're done. And they agreed. They kept it quiet for several months, 
but it was it was after um, his uh, historic concert as a Beatle without the Beatles in Toronto that they kind of broke up. So that's the, a beginning story and an end story. And my book has a lot of middle stories too. So yeah, thanks for asking. That's actually a great way to, to start talking about this discovery that I made. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that Toronto concert is, you know, we don't, I, I never really thought about it in terms of that, you know, the idea that this was sort of John's jumping off point, you know, like yes. I, I'm done. This is, you know, the thing that I've been in for almost 11 years of my life, you know, I'm, I'm splitting it up, which must have been a very insane sort of crazy moment in his life. And I can just imagine the, the terror that went through him because I, you know, I think people have a misconception that John was so ready to leave the Beatles once it, you know, hit. So I think that was, it must have been completely devastating for him to like realize this is it and I'm, I'm ready to move on, you know. Um, he needed to get on a stage in Canada in front of over 20,000 people, okay. yelling and screaming, uh, flashing yeah. peace signs and just loving this moment. Yeah. In other words, he was accepted as John Lennon, not as a Beatle. And that all happened right in Toronto, which is incredible, yes. you know, like, it's just amazing to me. And also the fact, I always think about that, the fact that there was Clapton and Klaus and all these, you know, incredible people around him. And you think like that, I mean, like, I don't, that could never happen again. That was such a no. moment in time, you know, that's such a moment in history. And, and I think that's the great thing about the Beatles is we can't ever get that again. That, that sort of history, that magic that they created and whatnot is just never gonna ever happen again you know but we have the music you know on the albums to remind us i, I, lo I love that perspective natalia actually you nailed it i think in many ways uh, these moments are, are are not replaceable we can't have them again but the fact that they happen and that we can relive them in our minds and in our hearts and in our souls is, is a beautiful thing absolutely absolutely um, all right, so because we are at the She Loves You podcast and we love talking about the women in the Beatles' lives and what they did to inspire them, I'm going to hand it over to you and I wanted to know, um, what are some fun facts about Beatle ladies and Canada? Well, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned uh, Cynthia's mom, Lillian, um, living in Toronto, true. Uh, we have some others. We have uh, George Harrison's uncle, Edmund. Um, uh, also moved to Ontario in 1953. His older sister, Louise, moved to Northern Ontario and then Northern Quebec in uh, about three years later. Um, so by, and, and by the late 50s, uh, Louise, his sister, because his mother was also named Louise, Louise, Louise the Younger, um, ended up having two children, Canadian-born children. So we have uh, actually blood relatives of a Beatle who were Canadians. So, and he also had two cousins living in Toronto. They were born in Liverpool, but they were raised in Toronto. Um, we have, uh, you mentioned Lillian Powell. She uh, moved to Toronto to be with her niece and nephew who were studying to be teachers. And you know when she when she took her trip back to Toronto after briefly returning to Liverpool was a day before John and Cynthia got married. Yes, yes, I remember reading that in her yes. book. And I was just like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. It was August twenty second, nineteen sixty two, the day before John and Cynthia got married. Kind of a, a shotgun wedding, right? Because uh, Julian uh, Julian was supposed to be born a few months later. But but on the surface, you know, it looks it looked like Lillian Powell, John's mother in law was leaving in protest because of the condition her daughter was in, right? right? And we know that Aunt Mimi, who was John's de facto mother, um, was major league opposed to this wedding, major league opposed to, 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 to Cynthia bearing John's child. Like it, it just, she was so uh, in, enraged by the whole thing. She said she would never have anything to do with it. Um, and then the only remaining matriarch is Cynthia's mom, the widow, Lillian Powell, and she buggers off to Canada. So it's like, what's going on? The reality is she didn't have an address in the UK. She had already pre-booked her ticket back to Canada. And it's not as if uh, back in those days you can easily change things or incur the cost of having to rebook. So she sort of said, sorry, daughter, I know you're getting married tomorrow. I don't exactly love the guy you're marrying. But I'm not leaving because I'm in protest. I'm leaving because my home is Canada. It's already booked. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And 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 there are uh, there's some great Facebook pages, by the way, dedicated to the Beatles' wives and women. And just wonderful. Yeah, it really, it's a great it's a great universe to, to sort of to, to to learn from. And in fact, so when she gets back to Canada, 
and she's knitting booties for little Jillian, and she's and she's sending clothes over on a regular basis. So Cynthia's getting all these parcels from Canada. Again, proof that her mom didn't leave in protest. She had no choice but to go back, right? <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, yeah, I, I remember reading that section in Cynthia's book, and I was just like, oh, my gosh, how could her mom have left her in such a, you know, critical time? But, you know, like you said, you can't change the ticket. You know, it's nice right? too. It's not like now where you can just say, you know, got to cancel my flight within 24 hours. Yeah. But, yeah, no, that, 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 that's incredible. Yeah, I, I always forget that she was in Canada at that time, and, but, but, you know, it is relevant. Um, and yeah, what, what else you got for me? What else? What oh, there's, a, there's, there's one that it's well known among, among Beatle fans, and that's Dorothy Roan, or Dot, as she yes. was known. Yes. Yeah, so you know that um, uh, unlike uh, John and Cynthia, where they had no family support, uh, uh, James McCartney, Paul's dad, when he found out that Dot was pregnant with Paul's baby, uh, he was all over it and was planning the wedding and oh, yeah. it was look, looking like it was gonna happen. Yeah, and then sadly and tragically, um, a dot miscarried. Yeah. And so um, it was after, um, so the wedding was called off. So the wedding bells were silenced, as I mentioned in my book. Um, and the wedding's called off and they start to grow apart. You know, now Paul is doing, doing these gigs in Hamburg and, and, the, and the ladies are all over him. And poor Dot is thinking, this is not going to last. So their engagement was broken off. And what does Dorothy do? she moves to Canada. So now in and of itself, that isn't such a big deal because uh, a lot of Brits found refuge in other parts of the world, right? In the, in, in, in post-war, in post-war Great Britain. Um, but she's off to Canada, starts a life of her own. Um, and to her credit has made a great life. She's still around. She lives uh, about 30 kilometers that way uh, from where I'm talking to you. Yeah. And, uh, and so she's, um, she's uh, in, her, in her late 70s, uh, has a great life in Canada. But here's the thing. So we talked about Cynthia a moment ago. Yeah. In 1994, Cynthia um, is, comes, comes to Canada to do a radio program. Um, it was called Breakfast with the Beatles. And do you remember before podcasts, before we did all this streaming, radio stations would have exclusive Beatle programs in the morning. And you hear nothing but Beatles, you know, for your entire driving to work. Beatles, yeah. I, yeah. I, think, I think there's one in California which is still around. It's one of the few that's still around. Yeah. Um, and in fact, that particular uh, host of that show got one of George Harrison's last interviews, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Another one of his last interviews occurred in Montreal, but we'll get, on, we'll, we'll get on to that maybe for another show. But I guess the point I wanted to make was in 94, Cynthia came to Canada to participate in a Breakfast for the Beatles program. She met up with Dorothy. Now, her and Dorothy were best friends in Liverpool. They lived together. They, they were at Hamburg together to see their boys playing. And they were separated by 30 years. It had been 30 years since they saw each other. But guess what? Cynthia had something for her. The engagement ring that Paul gave to Dorothy, which Dorothy somehow left in Liverpool and it ended up in Cynthia's, in Cynthia's possession. So they had a Liverpool reunion that was 30 years in the making to finally give her back Paul McCartney's engagement ring in Canada. So another beautiful connection that our country made to two Beatles women. Oh my goodness, that's just so wonderful. She probably threw the ring, as I think about it. <laughs> well, she has a good life. She married a fellow named Warner Becker, and he was in the auto industry, and she has a very good life with Mr. Becker. Can I tell you a bizarre one? Yes, go ahead. Okay, okay. So, a uh, warning to all the kiddies out there. This one involves some serious drug use. <laughs> it's, uh, it has to do... In the Beatles podcast, it wouldn't be one. <laughs> <laughs> I know, we're talking about the 60s and 70s, aren't we? So, yeah, you can't have that conversation without a little bit of fun and games around drugs. Um, everyone knows the story of John and George and Patty and Cynthia visiting George's dentist on Bayswater Street in London for a dinner party. Everyone knows that um, the dentist slipped them some LSD and that George and John and their, and their partners were tripping in a major way without being told. That's the thing. It was deceptive. It was mean. And it was actually, it had some really bizarre unintended circumstances. But here's the thing that not everyone knows. Dr. Riley, who has long been accused of being that guy who, who, laced, the, who laced their coffee with LSD, 
he got some help. He got some help. He was living with and eventually married a gal from Hamilton, Ontario. Hamilton is a city uh, just west of Toronto, about half a million people. And Cindy Burry was her name. And Cindy was the doctor's girlfriend, fiance, and then eventually wife. She's the one, according to Cynthia Lennon, she's the one, as they wanted to leave, the four, the four of them wanted to leave after dinner because they wanted to hit some clubs in London and Soho. But it was the Canadian who said, no, 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 please stay. I've made a pot of coffee and it's delicious. Cynthia actually attests to this. What did she and her doctor friend do? They laced the sugar cubes with liquid LSD. And back then, before your time, certainly, and a little bit before my time, they used um, these square cubes of sugar and they popped them in their coffee. They were laced with liquid LSD. So there was a, a gal from Hamilton, Ontario, who was very much part of this conspiracy to stone the two Beatles and their, and their spouses against their will, without their knowledge. <laughs> so there's that. See, another, Canada is just way too important in the Beatles. Yeah. You know, you don't think about that. And, you know, for years, I went thinking it was that doctor and I'm, or the dentist. The dentist, right, right. Um, have, you, have you heard of Prince Edward Island? Yes, I've heard of it. Yes. What What can you tell me about Prince Edward Island? It was so long ago. I know the name. I just can't remember the exact. Name. It is It is Canada's smallest province. Canada has ten provinces and three territories. Our tiniest province is is a wee island uh, near Nova Scotia and New Brunswick on the Atlantic side. So, for all intents and purposes, north of Maine, right? It's north of Maine. Um, anyway, um, Prince Edward Island is uh, an important um, part of Eric Clapton's life. Now, Eric Clapton was um, carrying on with Patty Boyd. She wasn't yet divorced from George. It's, uh, it's 1973, I believe, and her and George were sort of in a trial separation. Mm -hmm. Now, Eric Clapton, unknown to many, but known to us Canadians, is half Canadian. Eric Clapton's father was born in Montreal. He didn't identify as a Canadian, nor did he care to talk about it much, nor did he even know until the late 90s that this was the case. But anyway, it is the case, it's biologically true, it's irrefutable in that, in that sense. While he's having this passionate affair with George Harrison's wife, they're actually honeymoon, not honeymoon, they're not married yet, because she was still married to George. So they're, they're, they snuck away to Jamaica uh, in 1973. Wow. And while they're in Montego Bay, phone rings, it's um, Clapton's mother, who is in Prince Edward Island, Canada, to tell her son that his half-brother, a Canadian, had just died in a motorcycle accident. So he passed away in PEI on his motorcycle. Wow. Eric, um, who acknowledged his Canadian family, says to Patty, hey, we need to get to Canada. And so getting from Montego Bay to Prince Edward Island, I don't know how on earth they did it, but they pulled it off. Wow. But when they got to Toronto, which I guess was a transfer point for them to take a smaller flight to, to the island, um, there was a problem. You would think Eric Clapton would be the one who got stopped and told he can't proceed any further, that he's an unwanted whatever in Canada. No, it was Patty Boyd. What? Patty Boyd Harrison was stopped at Canadian Customs, red flagged, because of the drug bust in 1968 at her home with George in London. Yeah, she was red flagged. What does she do? She calls Robert Stigwood, who was a big time, big time music producer and the manager of, of Eric's band, uh, Cream, who knew someone at the Canadian Embassy, I'm guessing in London, at the High Commission in London, and they made it all go away so they were able to continue to PEI. So you have a beetle wife while still a beetle wife with her lover at her lover's half brother's funeral in Prince Edward Island in Canada. <laughs> oh my goodness. See, I really did not know about that one. This is why your book is so good. But that's insane. I had no idea. I don't think she, does she talk about it in her book? Because I know. No, I in, in fact, I tried to engage Patty and her publicist in the book. And I actually laid out all this story. Yeah. And I didn't hear back and it, it was kind of heartbreaking for me because it would have been nice. But here's the best part. Eric Clapton um, was completely unrecognized in this bar. Patty Boyd was completely unrecognized in this bar in a small place called Summerside PEI. 
Eric sees there's a dude playing the guitar in the bar and quietly walks up to him and says, do you mind if I try this? The guy says, are you sure you know how to play it? I just bought this new Gibson. And Eric looks at him and says, just let me have a roll with it. Now imagine being in a bar in Summerside PEI. You got Patty Boyd, you got Eric Clapton's mother. They're supposed to be mourning for this half brother who passed away. And Eric gets up there and does a couple of songs. The owner of the bar, who I interview in the book, said, the patrons, he and the others, never heard anything like that in their lives. And then afterwards, someone said, that was Eric Clapton. And they still said, who? <laughs> just the circumstances that had to have happened right you know she had to have been with eric they had to have been on their trip you know right. they had to you know the accident had to have happened they had to go to canada i mean like all the yeah. eating up and then you know you think they're carrying on an affair so all this is you know really under wraps you know yes you know any of this but yes. that's, that's crazy and see again these moments are never going to happen again things like that are never going to ever happen again right which is right crazy. So um, I've, got, I've got another one, if you like, and this is actually more contemporary, uh, Céline Dion. We all know who Céline Dion is, right? The, the great Canadian Quebec singer. Céline Dion um, has a connection that comes in the, in the mid-90s, but I'll, I'll back up a little bit. Um, in Canada, we all know that Céline Dion was married to a man named René Angile. Now, René was much older, it was kind of a little on the creepy side, like they're much older. It was her manager and she was like 14 and they fell in love and eventually they got married, but it all sort of worked out, right? They had some beautiful babies together. He passed away. Now, before René Angile met Céline Dion, he was in a band in the province of Quebec called Les Baronettes. And Les Baronettes was, a, it was a four piece band, kind of like a singing and dancing four guys on stage, not playing any instruments because they didn't need to play instruments. They were interpreting Beatles songs for Quebec French listeners. So they were the, the French Canadian Beatles, for lack of a better word, called Bar the Baronettes. And they, and they killed it. They were super popular, made a lot of money, of course, paid royalties to, um, to Parlophone and Capital, um, but did really, really well. Now, fast forward, uh, Rene and Céline are married. George Martin uh, decides, as he's losing his hearing, poor guy, he just, he just knighted as George Martin. It's 1997, and he decides to put, to put together an album of his favorite 13 Beatles songs. Okay. But to get characters, like Jim Carrey and, um, and uh, oh, there, uh, Sean Connery uh, to, to sing these songs in, in a kind of unique way. Well, Céline did a version of Here, There, and Everywhere, which if you haven't heard, and we all know it's one of Paul's favorite compositions, if you haven't heard, it'll blow you away. So you've got the Céline Dion doing a George Martin um, request for Here, There, and Everywhere, back it up. The man who became her husband was part of the, French Canadian Beatles. <laughs> That's amazing. Just that, and you know, it just shows how much the Beatles have impacted people in general. And yes. Circumstances like, and I, and I think that's the great thing about your book is, you know, you're reading all of these circumstances, events, people's, you know, yes. that you just, you're thinking that's crazy. And I think yeah. that's why, I mean, I, I think people, some people will say, oh, well, why do you need to write a book about Canada and the Beatles? You know, we get it, but I think this is why, you know, it just shows the true significance that Canada has just truly had with this band. Yeah. And it's been wonderful. To read and Natalia, I'm, I'm just giving you examples, you know, of the women who yeah. played a role in, in those Canadian connections. Um, but that's like probably a third uh, of, 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 of the of the final outcome because there's so, so much more. I can go on about the significance of Yoko Ono, the yeah, Beatles in Canada. It's unreal. It's unreal how important a part she played in John's maturity, his coming out as a non-Beatle, and it happened right here in Canada. So it's, uh, it's remarkable. Yoko's role cannot be understated. A very, very important piece of the puzzle. I mean, I, I think Yoko, for all intents and purposes, is probably besides Cynthia obviously but you know the most important person in John's life in yeah. a lot of ways. and um you know like you said her impact in Canada is 
you know, more than we know. And, and, and that, you know, we're only scratching the surface of what, you know, Canada is to the Beatles and so forth. So that's, that's wonderful. Um, but I, I just love that story that you told me about the dentist and his girlfriend or wife now, but um, that, that just amazes me. And I, you know, again, these are things that I'm learning for the first time. I like to call myself like, oh, I know a lot about the Beatles. I, I know so much, you, you don't got to tell me, but it's been, it's, it's wonderful to know that there's just so much more that we really don't know when it comes to that. But um, I also wanted to just say, I was reading this last night, specifically the Eric Clapton section and I did think it was so interesting, that idea that he was Canadian his whole life and just really did not know yeah. about it. You know, it's yeah. one of those mysteries that he had to really solve, I guess, later on. Yeah. But. He was actually uh, he was actually denied both his biological parents. Yeah. Uh, his mother disowned him, left, left her mother, so his grandmother, to raise poor Eric. Yeah. And he never knew his father. Uh, his father uh, came back to Canada after the war. Uh, died in the 19, uh, I can't remember the year, died in, uh, at age 75 uh, in Toronto at a veterans hospital. Um, and Eric had no knowledge of this. It all happened um, when he was very young and he was raised by his grandmother. So to her credit, she created this, this sensational um, guitar god who had this life without either of his biological parents. But the way it plays out in Prince Edward Island is fascinating to say the least. Oh, definitely. You know, I, I, I never heard that. I, and I, you know, it's maybe Patty just didn't remember, you know, is what I like to think of it. Cause there's, you know, I think obviously years pass and you forget things and your memory can be, yeah. but, but I mean, I, I, I would have loved to have read that in her book. I think yeah. it would be a compliment to the, um, to the story. Yeah. Um, but Patty's, Patty's life story has not been entirely told. I mean, she's, she's getting very active on Instagram and she does these chats. I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if something triggers the, um, the memory in her mind about being in PEI and she does an episode on it. I wouldn't be surprised at all. I, I hope she calls me. <laughs> I know she occasionally does podcast things and she'll answer questions and so forth. I'm so tempted to just ask the question, you know, what happened in, you know, Canada? You tell yeah. me now because... Yeah. I really hope she talks about it because that's just so so interesting to me um and yeah and I, I, that's also another thing you know like the beetle women that are still with us thank god a lot of them are um they're so active on social media now which is just wonderful to see like i yeah i know may pang has her instagram and i follow her and patty and, and so forth so it's, it's great that we can still talk to them yeah. and still relive those experiences that they all did yeah it's may's birthday today it is May's it birthday. Is. Happy birthday, May. I don't know if you listen, but if you do, thank you. <laughs> um, I'm so, I really want to interview her one day. I think it'd be really interesting. Um, but yeah, no, so I, I just, I'm very, very happy with your book, and I've, I've enjoyed reading it so far from what I have read. Um, I cannot wait to get into the later years as well. Like, the yoga section is also what I'm very interested in as well. Um, so, okay, I wanted to just ask you personal questions about your Beatles uh, mania for yourself. Um, what is your favorite Beatles album? I think uh, without a doubt, it's Revolver. I think Revolver was the game changer for Beatle fans and for the Beatles themselves. I think it set them off on a course um, that um, where there was no turning back. Uh, it changed the course of their music. It changed the course of history. Um, it became, in my opinion, Rubber Soul had a little bit of this, but Revolver was more where the Beatles began to use almost a canvas of sound and they began to paint on that canvas and I think George Martin was critical to all this but they the music sounded like nothing we'd ever heard before and I think that began with Revolver. What an outstanding album. I, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking of when I first heard the Revolver album and how much it meant to me and so of all the albums that I replay it, it's probably way well ahead of all the others as, as the one I replay most often. Absolutely. It's my favorite album too. So I, I cool. totally, you know, like I agree cool. with you wholeheartedly. People, I, I always think, I always say people like to think Sgt. Pepper was the psychedelic album and I'm like, no way it was Revolver. It was, yeah. it was Revolver in a lot of ways. I mean, given Sgt. Pepper is psychedelic, but in a, in a different way. I call it more of like a Baroque pop yeah. album. Natalia, did you get to this section in my book about the, uh, the Ontario provincial police officer named Sgt. Pepper? I did not, and that is okay. what I was, I was, right. I was about to say, but I, 
fell asleep because it was so late in the night. No worries. I, I couldn't put your book down. That was just, you know, one of the things I couldn't put it down. And I was like, oh no, you know, but, but go ahead. Talk, tell me about that. Well, it, it doesn't have a female component. Uh, it sort of does. It sort of does. So there was a, um, a career uh, provincial police officer. So where you have the California State Police, we have the Ontario Provincial Police, kind of the same idea. They look after the roads and, and, and things that the cities don't look after, right? Okay, so a career OPP officer, that's the Ontario Provincial Police, um, who was in charge of looking after the Beatles on their last visit to Canada in 1966. He, was, he led the, the security detail for the four of them in the summer of 66. And he spent a solid 24 hours with them and they really got to like him. Yeah. And they got along really well. In fact, um, on the Sgt. Pepper album, when you open the gatefold, um, Paul McCartney has an OPP crest on his Sgt. Pepper outfit. That's the Ontario Provincial Police. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, within a couple of months of them returning to England, never to tour again, because don't forget, uh, although um, Candlestick Park was their last concert, Toronto was like their fourth last concert or something along those lines. So they were getting near the end of their touring career. But not long afterwards, they begin the groundwork for the album that would be Sgt. Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band. The police sergeant who looked after them in Toronto was named Sergeant Pepper. Wow. He gave them, or it's alleged he gave them, the OPP crest which Paul wore on his Sergeant Pepper photo shoot. And the, the granddaughter, because Sergeant Pepper has passed away, his granddaughter I uh, interviewed at length for my book, and she's absolutely convinced her granddad was the, the, the namesake of this great album. So again, uh, so there's a female connection because it was, it was, his, it was the granddaughter who carries on um, this legend, which has its merits. And they're, they're, one thing I will say though, um, the story is almost too impossible to believe. And I understand that. Um, and there are very few Beatles scholars outside of Canada who subscribe to it. So I understand that too. And I mentioned that in the book. I don't try to come up with the scoop of the century here. I try to be reasonable yeah. about it. So I do give the last word to one of Canada's better known musicologists who says, who concludes it's possible. He just leaves it at that. It's very likely it's possible. You know, that's, that's an experience that obviously he, he had with them. And even if like, let's say it's maybe not too plausible, it's still an experience and it still is a possibility deep down. You know, yeah. I, I always say like, that's, that is someone's experience with them and yeah. that's what counts, I think, obviously. And, and, and what's wrong with some Beatle mythology? I mean, we well, live for this stuff, right? You know, <laughs> I, I always kind of make hypothesis and I'll say, oh, that was because of this. I know that, you know, <laughs> no, obviously we, we, you know, we just assume that it's, it's, it's his experience. And, you know, you never want to take that away from someone, I think. So yes. it's wonderful. Um, I don't know. I guess I have a fun Canada fact, even though it's, I don't know, I don't know how much you know about it, but um, I don't know if you've seen Mad Men, the TV show that's... Okay. All right. Well, one of the characters in the show is a young lady and she's Canadian. I, I, I think she comes from Quebec, I believe. I, I'm not sure, but she's French Canadian herself. Um, and she ends up marrying the main character of the show. And throughout the show's run, she always is mentioning the Beatles. You know, at any chance she has, she actually plays the Revolver album for her husband in one episode. And yeah. there's a big age difference between the characters. So, you know, you're talking about a man that fought in Korea and, you know, is very much the Frank Sinatra listener type, not the Beatles at all, but she's a young lady. And she says, oh, you, you definitely want to play this song. And um, it was, um, oh God, what song was it? It was one of the songs on Revolver. Um, and it's really interesting because, you know, like she keeps mentioning throughout and it's a very Canadian type uh, connection. And she also, um, I believe, what, oh, she, she uh, sings I Want to Hold Your Hand in the car with him at one point in the show as well. And, you know, it's just like, I, I always found that so hilarious that she was the one young person in the show that was so obsessed with the Beatles and she happened to be Canadian, French Canadian. So I thought that was a, a fun fact. You know what, Natalia, we can actually probably uh, drive this back to the fact that Beatles were part of Canadian um, uh, culture, uh, Canadian um, uh, music. Um, 
almost a year before they really, really hit their stride in the U.S. So that, that may be part of it. It may also be part of the fact that a French-Canadian gal in the 60s would have almost certainly have heard of Les Baronettes, which was the French-Canadian um, um, band that would do Beatles songs in French. They would convert the lyrics to French and play the, the, the Beatles music as, as the soundtrack. So there was probably enough going on in Canada during the time of Mad Men that it, it's, it's easy to justify why she was so into it, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it, I think it's also just how, you know, she was a young girl in the 60s and, you know, every young girl in the 60s loved the Beatles. But no, definitely, I can, I can definitely see that the idea that the Beatles were much, I guess, more well-known in Canada before the U.S. caught on to it has a significant, you know, influence on that. So, yeah. Which is always interesting. I always like to think about that, how some countries caught on way before the U.S. did and they had already loved and devoured the Beatles, um, Canada yeah. being one of them, obviously. So yeah. that, that's, that's amazing. Um, okay, and I guess another personal question, who is your favorite Beatle and why? It yeah, it's a great question. I, it, for me, it's always, um, hmm, it's really tough because sometimes uh, I, I have more conscious thoughts of John Lennon than any of the other four. So in terms of, of filling my psyche, it's definitely Lennon. Okay. But you know, he gets, pushed and pulled and sometimes, and, and sometimes he's, he's not treated with the respect that he deserves. But in terms of longevity and pure creative genius, Paul McCartney. I mean, to me, uh, George was a, a great underrated Beatle. Um, Randy Bachman, the famous guitarist from Bachman Turner Overdrive and the Guess Who, uh, considers George the number one Beatle. And I understand Bachman's argument in that, in that regard. But for me, just in terms of sheer artistic depth and the fact that he's more than just music, he is an artist, he, is a, he writes children's books, he, he, writes, he writes scores for symphonies. I mean, Paul McCartney to me is the Beatle, with the, obviously with the longevity, but he's still going. This is, this is a guy who knows nothing but how to produce art. Most of it is really, really good. Some of it not so good. But uh, just in terms of that depth of character, that depth of artistic reach, Paul McCartney. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, you know, that's, that's a thing with me too. John has always been my favorite Beatle. Like, I, I think just because I've known him the longest, like even yeah. if I really knew of the Beatles, I knew John Lennon, you know, you just mm -hmm. know the name. Um, and, and also I think Cynthia being my favorite Beatles wife might have something to do with that as well. Um, right. My own personal like preferences, but I definitely think Paul and exactly what you're saying in terms of being an artist and what he did with art right. and culture and, you know, like society. I think he definitely, I, I mean, controversial take, but I really do think he was the brains behind the Beatles. I, I, yeah. I really don't think they would have had all the albums they did if it was not for, Paul, right. you know. Um, but yeah, no, that that's wonderful. Um, so I guess one, two, I guess two final things I wanted to say before we come to a close is um, what does it mean to you to be a Canadian Beatles fan? What is it, you know, like, what does it mean to you? Uh, it means uh, that I spent far too much of my life uh, obsessing with this stuff. Um, but it also means um, being Canadian um, and, and a Beatles fan and a fan of their solo work. I love the connections that we have to them. I absolutely adore the fact that uh, John's breakout before the Beatles dissolved was Canada. I adore the fact that George Harrison um, wrote All Things Must Pass and a few other songs from his debut album um, because he loved the way the band played. And the band is a mostly Canadian band. There were five members, four of whom were Canadian. So he was inspired by a Canadian band to write a little differently and, and, and it created a, breakup, a breakthrough album. Uh, probably, arguably, the best Beatles solo album inspired in some small way by Canadian musicians. Wow. Um, I love the fact that when Ringo's all-star band sets out to tour North America, they either go to Niagara Falls, Ontario, or to a place called Rama, Ontario, to rehearse for two weeks or a week before they set out and, and go to, across the continent to play, because they just love it there. Um, and I, I, I guess when it comes to McCartney, um, when he tours, he always comes to Canada. And when he comes to Canada, it could be part of a North American tour, but he only plays Mull of Kintyre in Canada. 
Right. And you know what he does? He allows local bagpipe and drum bands from the cities he's playing it in, whether it's Edmonton, Regina, um, Winnipeg, Toronto, um, Vancouver, he allows local pipe and drum bands to come on stage with him to do the pipes, the bagpipes from all of Kintyre. So that's what it means for me to be a Canadian Beatles fan, is to make these wonderful connections with them as a band, which I've, I've made in my book. You know, it's all there, right? But also uh, the Beatles as, as, a, as a solo band, uh, sorry, as solo artists as well. It, it means a lot for me to be connected to them as a Canadian. Wow, that's incredible. Um, well, thank you so much for being here today. It's been incredible to talk to you um, and being my first guest, obviously. And I'm, I'm so thankful that you've written this book because I think it's going to really highlight the incredible impact that Canada has just had with the Beatles and particularly with Beatle women. You know, there's so many stories about Canada, which is, it's been fascinating because I love hearing this new information every single time. So thank you so much for being able to write this and you know, what a wonderful book. I, what I'm reading so far, it's been excellent. And this is definitely going to be a big hit in the community. And you know, like I want everyone to read it. I'm telling everybody to go read it just because it's just, it's wonderful. Um, and I guess on one final note, I guess with relating to a Beatle girl, or I guess a, a woman that's just been a fan, you mentioned, I'm not sure, correct me if I'm wrong, but you mentioned that there was a Canadian Beatles fan who started the Canadian Beatles fan club from her bedroom. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. Trudy Metcalf, Trudy Metcalf was 14 and she was actually born in England, but, but uh, became a Canadian. And while she was in England visiting her cousins, she saw the Beatles in July of 63. She came back to Canada to her home and decided um, she's going to start a Beatles fan club. Yeah. She did from her bedroom, from her kitchen, uh, suburban bedroom and kitchen, and um, eventually grew the fan club to 50,000 members, which for a, a period of time was 500 more than the Beatles UK fan club had. Yeah. So yeah, so she's a, she was a big part. You know, we talk about the Beatles coming to Canada before the US. Uh, she's a big part of that history. And we can thank a 14 year old uh, high schooler for being part of the, part of the, the magic puzzle yeah. that brought that brought the band to our shores before they, they went anywhere else in the Western Hemisphere. If there's and, and, and Natalia, I wanted to say, I mean, you thanked me and you were very kind um, in your comments towards me, but I accept all that. But let me just throw it all back at you. Look at you. Okay. I mean, you're, you're keeping the flame flickering. You're keeping this wonderful thing called the Beatles happening in people's lives. And, and you've, taken, you've made a, a really strategic decision to go with stories about the Beatles' female connections, female inspirations. Uh, and let's not fool ourselves. That, that changed a big part and affected a big part of their history as well. Not just as muses, but when we think of Yoko's influence on John's solo work, it is profound. When we think of Linda, not just being a wife and a mother, but part of the band, part of one of the biggest bands of the 1970s and 80s. Are you kidding me? Right? We think of uh, Patty's profound impact on, on George um, through good and bad, right? We think of, um, we think of, and their children as well. We think of Stella McCartney. We think of people um, who are in their immediate orbit, um, who are, are a big part of the history. So you're keeping that going. So thank you. <laughs> oh, that means the world to me. Oh my gosh. No, you know, it's, I think, you know, kind of your connection with Canada and the Beatles and I, that's sort of my Canada. You know, I, 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 I get it. I get it. I'm a huge feminist myself. I think annoyingly so to the point where it upsets people, but you know, I have always said that I think women's stories always need to be told more. And I, you know, as a Beatles fan, I was always just so like, amazed by the women you know like even if it was just friends in their lives like Astrid or you know like just people in their lives that have affected them in profound ways yeah. it's always made me just so happy to learn about and yeah. it's honestly an honor to be able to do this you know even yeah. if it's just a hobby you know because I don't I don't get paid for this you know we don't you know I, I don't get paid for this but it's it's just incredible and I'm I'm so happy and you know I've been able to meet so many amazing people and and just you know be in this community that I think is just so great and yeah. Thank you so much. That really does mean a lot to me. I'm Thank you. Like, truly. Natalia, if, if you ever um, do an episode on Indigenous women and the Beatles, okay. 
I've got three stories in my book about Indigenous Canadian women and the Beatles. So look them up, okay? I will definitely keep that in mind. Thank you so much. Um, but yeah, th thank you everybody for joining us uh, for this amazing episode of She Loves You. Um, we are going to have hopefully our Yoko episode coming up soon, which I'm very excited about because it's awesome. probably my longest one because there's so much on her to do. Um, but thank you so much, John. This was incredible, as I've said, and congrats on your book. Congrats you. on, you know, writing such, such an incredible piece of work. Um, Thank you. Definitely, definitely going to make waves. I can tell you that. I'm telling everyone to read this. And I hope, so that, I hope that it's as amazing as you've made it. So. Thanks so much. So Google, Amazon, iTunes, um, it's all over the place. Uh, or uh, BeatlesInCanada.com. Thank you so much. It's called Us and Them, Canada and the Beatles. Thank you guys so much. Bye-bye.